And good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where just about anything can happen. You're going to want to go to our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, click on tonight's banner for Jim Willis, Lost Civilizations. Are we next for October 13th? It's a Sunday, October 13th. Uh, my first guest tonight is Dane Wigington, who, as you know, is our geoengineering consultant to the other side of midnight. He has a background in solar energy, and he's been devoting the last several decades to this extraordinarily intractable technical and political issue. Is someone monkeying with the planetary climate and weather in a large, clandestine, enormous scale effort to attempt to change or modify the climate or prevent certain things from happening, and they haven't just kind of gotten around to telling the rest of us. So what the hell happened this week in California, and why did we have a major snowstorm here in the uh, central southwest, which dropped temperatures in Denver by 70 degrees in something like just a couple, three hours, and 60 degrees here where I'm broadcasting from. What is going on? Welcome to climate engineering. Welcome to patented processes of chemical ice nucleation for weather modification, something geoengineeringwatch.org has been desperately trying to sound the alarm on for over a decade. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Ice nucleation. For those of us that didn't get through grade school, what the hell is ice nucleation? <laughs> it's seeding cloud moisture with materials that cause what's called a, an endothermic reaction, an energy-absorbing reaction. And what that does is it converts what should have been a liquid precipitation event into a frozen precipitation event. The patents state these chemicals can nucleate ice at temperatures pushing 50 degrees Fahrenheit. So as that nucleation process occurs, as that endothermic reaction recur, occurs, it creates a very cold, dense layer of air that descends from the clouds to the ground. Richard, this is much like people know they have first aid kits that have ice packs in them, right? They can sit on a shelf at room temperature for 20 years. You mix those chemicals, you have ice. Mm -hmm. Same same theory on a scale that's unimaginable. So a shallow layer of air that might sometimes be only a few hundred feet thick, and we know this because we're communicating with airline pilots who say sometimes they're, they're up off the deck eight, 900 feet or more, and temperatures go up 20 or 30 degrees. So we know it's a shallow layer of air that creates the headlines and the conditions that the climate engineers and the media that represents them love to sensationalize, which creates, again, fuels the division and confusion in the population as to the true state of the planet. While the planet descends into total meltdown for many causes, many reasons, climate engineering further fueling that process overall. But on the short term, they can create these extreme winter events, extremely cold temperatures on the surface and that skews the equation, skews the data, and helps to mask the true reality. So someone created this massive storm, which caused very high winds in California, causing PG&E proactively to shut off the power so they wouldn't be sued again for like a billion plus dollars like they were after the paradise by the so-called campfire. Um, what, what is this? What, 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 what's the mega reason? Why are they doing this? Is it just political? to give senators on the Senate floor ability to bring in a snowball and say, see, global warming is a myth, or is there a deeper, more substantive reason? 
I would argue there are many reasons. And one, if you've heard of, and I, I'm sure you have, the ridiculously resilient ridge. That's what the meteorologists have named this high-pressure dome that parks itself over the U.S. West, spinning clockwise in the northern hemisphere, as high-pressure domes do. And like a, like a flywheel on a fan belt, that moves the air and the moisture up over the top of the west, where it spins again around that clockwise rotation back down to the south, bringing this colder air that has been that's been nucleated, and i.e. polar vortex at times when they do this to an extreme enough degree. So it's we can look at the west as a at minimum a climate sacrifice zone that in order to carry down cool downs or carry out cool downs further east one zone is sacrificed in order to rotate the upper level winds the way they want but i would argue there's much more to the equation as you just stated or alluded to we have potential pushback against certain positions california has taken we have also populations here that if they're mired in their own misery, it's pretty hard for them to do much on the bigger picture to even look at it, let alone do anything about it. So there's likely many agendas being carried out, but certainly we have to at minimum look at it as a climate sacrifice zone. They need the high pressure dome over the West to spin the weather conditions they need to create a cool down further East. Geoengineeringwatch.org has covered this over and over. I think I sent you about. Yeah, I was going to get to that. If everybody goes to the other side of midnight.com, if you're on the phone just listening, you need to go to the website, click on the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner for Lost Civilizations. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Uh, Dane being our first guest, scroll down, or actually you can, at the very top under the banner on the guest page, just click on Dane's items, and that will take you directly to his section of Radio with Pictures. There are several links there, I think, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's 12 links, all dealing with this ice nucleation creation of artificial winter in the middle of summer or in early fall, all the physics, all the background documentation. Um, for those that you know aren't near a, a, a device where they can do this, roughly how does this work? Do you have to have a fleet of jet aircraft, you know, spraying, 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 or how how little do you need to trigger such a massive climactic shift like uh, 70 degree temperature falls in a few hours? Well, again, keep in mind it's a shallow surface layer that may only be a few hundred feet thick. So when we look at when people go into a market, Richard, and they see the big open freezer with no top, yet everything's frozen in that freezer because that cold air sits in that basin. Uh, Denver was a perfect location for them to carry this out because it is a basin and they could really make some headlines there, and that's what they did. I've been outside through uh, multiple of engineered chemical ice nucleation events, and in my remote area of Northern California, during those events, what you hear outside in a remote location where there's no other sounds, you hear parades of jets going overhead, literally one after another after another. They are very low. They're right on top of the cloud cover, and the flakes here in the last – Large snow we had in Northern California, a very unusual snow, record-breaking, did horrific damage to the, the trees and foliage because it starts the chemical the nucleation process at a far higher temperature than it should be. So the flakes are huge and heavy. It's like concrete. They're very adhesive. They stick to, to things. They don't, they don't blow off like a naturally nucleated snow would. So it does a tremendous amount of damage to the trees, of foliage, homes, structures, and we're not guessing. I want to stress that. We've tested 
these, this frozen precipitation in multiple locations around the country. We find exactly the elements in it that we would expect to find, surfactants, synthetic urea. We find the normal climate engineering elements of barium, strontium, aluminum, primarily. Um, these so, are all chemicals that should not be in natural precipitation. Absolutely not. That snow is highly toxic. And Richard, you see how many accidents that occur now. This is it, because so it's of the not just so it's not just don't eat the yellow snow. Don't eat any snow. Correct. And you see how how many pileups they had in Denver and other places. Now, of course, we know snow is is slick, but not like this snow. When you have surfactants, which people they don't know what that is. That's what you have in soap as well. Uh, it, it affects the molecular tension of water molecules. It it makes the snow extraordinarily slick. Decreases and, friction. Yes, and we see this. We see that. I mean, people who have driven on snow for decades suddenly have trouble, and uh, that's one of the major reasons why people see foaming rain often before, because the chemical nucleation process can be used just to cool down the air mass. It doesn't always reach the ground as frozen precipitation. They can just lower the temperatures 30, 40 degrees, and they do that as well. It also contributes to the massive hailstones we see falling everywhere now. Starts that nucleation process sooner, bigger hailstone. I know we already went over the ice boulders on Lake Michigan, Baltic Sea, other places, and this same process is how they've hidden the true severity of polar meltdown as well. So one thing I want to be clear to your listeners, and I'll give this back to you, this is just in a, in a nutshell. There can be no legitimate discussion about the climate or the state of the climate without discussing climate engineering first and foremost. And in regard to climate engineering, there can be no legitimate discussion about climate engineering without discussing chemical ice nucleation and engineered cool-down events. Do you think the current president, um, uh, Donald Trump, knows about any of this? You can't not know. And in January of 2016, Mr. Trump's top campaign people and Carson's top campaign people, campaign people that's tough to say fast, <laughs> Yes, um, were uh, had a meeting in a U.S. Air Force Brigadier General's home, who I know personally, uh, the meeting was specifically to address the, the geoengineering issue. Geoengineeringwatch.org materials were sent to this meeting and distributed there. There's no question they know, and I'm sure they knew long before that. So there's there's absolutely no question. So this should be a legitimate issue by the Democrats against this president in the coming presidential campaign, and the candidate should be asking Donald Trump, why the hell are you letting this continue? Why aren't you stopping it? Why aren't you, you know? basically preventing hidden agendas from taking control of the United States without permission of its citizens, et cetera, et cetera. They're all part of the same crime syndicate, either side of the coin. And I, I would argue you're well, wait, 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 Dane, that isn't that this. that is an opinion on your part. I maintain vigorously the only way we're going to get a breakthrough is if one of these <laughs> candidates during the debate brings up the idea that Donald Trump is personally complicit in this geoengineering campaign. That's the only way we're going to get a breakthrough. So is Nancy Pelosi. So, so is Gavin Newsom. How can I say that about Gavin Newsom? Because I've been in his office in the Capitol with his top aide, presented irrefutable data on this issue, which they did not, could not dispute. What do we see after out of Mr. Newsom? Well, then, then so, you're saying basically there's not a damn thing we can do. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this is going to have to be a grassroots scenario. We saw these programs ramped up heavily under Clinton and under Obama and under Bush, of course, as well, steadily. One of the biggest ramp ups was underneath uh, Clinton at the end of the 90s. So, again, we see no difference between 
any occupant of the White House. But does that not, mean we don't try? Absolutely. We not. have we have we 20 candidates all competing, you know, for the top slot to run against Trump. This would be an incredible card to play if they could prove with the data that you've assessed and accumulated on your website, voluminous data, the actual specifics, the engineering, the science, the documentation that this is going on. Because if we don't do anything, then we're all going to just fall off the cliff. I'm certainly not suggesting we don't try. I've devoted nearly 20 years of my life to trying, and I will continue to until my last breath. What I'm stating is that all of these candidates know how long their leash is, and they are not about to address see, this that's issue. see, that's an assumption again. You don't know that. Uh, I know you assume that, but you don't know that. Uh, I, I know when we're communicating – with individuals that are inside the system right now with top secret clearances that are communicating with us and extraordinarily afraid of doing so, I would say it's not an opinion. It's an absolute fact. Well, I'm a firm believer in the political process. It's kept us alive for 250 years in this country, and we're not dead yet. So I'm voting that if someone in the audience wants to get materials to hand deliver to one of the presidential candidates, either left or right, Republican or Democrat. Remember, there's a governor from Massachusetts. There's Joe Welsh. There's the uh, uh, congressman, former governor from North Carolina. There's a lot of potential op, op, you know, targets of opportunity. If you want to get materials to provide to these candidates, the guy to go to is Dane Wigington. How do they get hold of you, Dane? Uh, geoengineeringwatch.org. We have the, the most effective materials, I believe, available on the homepage of geoengineeringwatch.org. It's non-political materials. With Richard, I know you've seen those. We send these to you, and, and we distribute these for our approximate cost of producing and shipping. And to be clear, I am not suggesting people don't do what you described. I absolutely hope they do. I'm simply saying don't stop there. Don't stop there. Don't put your, your entire bet on a candidate because that's, that's a bet that's doomed to fail. Well, as we, we used to, to say when I worked for NASA, no single point failure. Correct. So if we can provide – here's where I would argue that uh, we'll reach fruition and do some good, and, and, and planting those seeds of those candidates is important. I, I'm not arguing with you on that, but it, we must provide a critical mass of awareness in the population to provide cover, not just for those candidates, but for scientists and agencies we're communicating with, some of the individuals with clearances that I just mentioned we're communicating with. We have to have enough awareness so that these people can't be – um, silently taken down so enough of the population knows this is happening. And if we can reach that level of awareness, Richard, we will have people pouring from all corners of academia. We'll have candidates standing up and starting to tell the truth, but it must come from a critical mass of public awareness. And that's where these materials help because we're being so heavily censored on social media. I mean, they deleted geoengineeringwatch.org from the top of the search of Google for the geoengineering term down to, I think we're at page 15 now. They just put us back in at page 15. They're, they're censoring us horrifically, so we need a critical mass of awareness. These materials are exceptional for, for raising that awareness, and, and again, we try to distribute them for our approximate cost of producing and shipping. Again, Dane Wigington, his uh, website is geoengineeringwatch.org, and I thank you, and we'll obviously have you back. A broad you, front Richard. campaign, no single point failure is my recommendation. Thank You're you. on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hogan. 
we return, we're going to be talking about lost civilizations. And it's kind of appropriate because if we don't do something about this problem, are we going to join them? We shall return. After graduating from the prestigious Eastman School of Music, Jim Willis was a high school band and orchestra teacher during the day, a symphony trombonist on the weekends, a jazz musician at night, and a choral conductor on Sunday mornings before earning his master's degree in religion and entering the Protestant ministry for 40 years. The author of 12 books on religion and spirituality, Jim has served as an adjunct college professor in the field of world religions and instrumental music while working part-time as a carpenter, the host of his own drive-time radio show, an arts council director, guest lecturer, speaking about topics ranging from historical studies to contemporary spirituality. Some of his latest books include Lost Civilizations from Visible Ink Press and The Quantum Akashic Field, from Findhorn Inner Tradition, scheduled for release on December 1st. Um, in other words, James Willis is a generalist. And tonight we're going to be talking about one of his really fascinating areas of expertise, which is the idea of lost civilizations and the prospect that we could be next, apropos of my conversation with Dane Wigington. Jim. Welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you, Richard. Good to be with you. Well, you, I wish it was under. You were you were listing all that stuff. You made me sound so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, if if, if, you, if you can't do it, you got to sound like you can do it. <laughs> hey, I spent a couple fascinating weeks because I couldn't do it full time, uh, reading your book Lost Civilizations, and the thing that struck me as unique. I mean, there's a lot of other writers working on things like this, but the thing that struck me about your book as unique is that you bring in the idea that if we keep going on our same path, that we, in the 21st century, sitting comfortably either at home or in a vehicle, listening on our multiple devices, you know, enjoying a Sunday evening, that we could be next because – you talk about all these other cultures where all those inhabitants, all those citizens, all those people that came before, they each blithely assumed that their culture, their surroundings, their normal would continue on forever, and it didn't. So where should we begin? And then we've got – we're coming up to a break, so give them a good tease for the, uh, for the break. Uh, well, I, that was one of the biggest surprises I came up when I started studying this, and I think there's a lot of 
evidence, two lines of evidence especially that we can talk about. Evidence in stone and evidence in story. How's that? Okay. Well, <laughs> give, us a, give us an example of a story. Well, the mythology, a classic example is the Atlantis tradition. Um, it's a story that just won't quit. Now, a lot of people have tried to find an, an actual location, uh, and uh, they will argue about it. Some will say it's in the Mediterranean. Some will say it's in the Atlantic. Some will say it's in the Caribbean. Some will say it's Antarctica. Uh, but you know, we we can't agree on a necessarily necessarily on a specific location. But the story is the thing. It is so predominant. And it just keeps coming back, and it offers so many explanations that I think the mythology that I like to call the Atlantis tradition uh, is a perfect example of uh, a culture that superseded itself, that gave way to hubris, and followed the commands of followed the ideas of power and uh, economic wealth. And I think this has happened before in human history. And I'm, we'll get into a lot of those tonight, I'm sure. I think it's happened before, and I think that uh, it's happening right now. And we have to learn from them, because if we don't, we're going to become the next lost civilization. Well, Jim, um, that's a pretty good tease. My guest this morning is Jim Willis, generalist, historian, looking at lost civilizations. And this is going to be a ride, so fasten your seatbelts. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
welcome back everyone to the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Jim Willis, who is an expert in many different fields. You can go and read his bio. It's it's quite in, impressive because it's kind of like the old NASA saying again, no single point failure. But the focus of tonight of his research and his expertise and his passion is lost civilization. So, Jim, let's pick up, since everybody knows the, the concept of Atlantis, you mentioned a couple of possibilities for where it really could be. The most interesting to me and the place where I have actually found data myself from the, uh, the bird expeditions is the Antarctic. Talk a bit about the Atlantis myth and the, the effort to locate where, if any place, it might have been. That is a fascinating, uh, a fascinating idea. Uh, Plato, who first, of course, brought Atlantis to us, was very, very uh, specific in talking about when and where Atlantis was. He located it 11,600 years ago in history. Uh, very specific about that. Much more uh, specificity than you would need if you were just going to have a, a teaching story, a, a myth to tell your students to teach a moral or teach a lesson. He also uh, placed it in a specific location, and that's outside the Straits of Hercules, outside the Mediterranean. Um, and Atlantis was the place that was between the area of uh, Europe in the Mediterranean and the greater country that lay beyond, the greater continent that lay behind, beyond. Well, of course, the greater continent is very probably uh, America. So is there a landmass in there? Well, it, it happened uh, when I was back in Massachusetts. Uh, I was living in Massachusetts right down below a Keene, which is up in New Hampshire, Keene State College. And um, but the professor up there was was very um, very adamant about his allowing his students to talk about these kinds of things in in class. And lo and behold, and I'm 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 blanking on the name right now. I'm I'm sorry. I just couldn't remember it off the top of my head. But uh, one of the ideas that he came up with was the possibility of uh, continental shift um, and Earth. I mean Earth shift and and uh, are you talking about Charles Hapgood? Hapgood. I, I'm sorry. I couldn't remember the name. Yes, Hapgood. Happens all the time. Um, Happens to me all the time. Hapgood wrote a story, uh, wrote a, 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 a book about this, and it was his belief uh, that Antarctica was once farther north, but due to plate tectonics and ships, it shifted down south. Now this has some great, uh, great meanings to it. It was such a, uh, a an intense book that he actually wrote to Albert Einstein and got a reply. Einstein was very, uh, very excited about this whole idea. This was in the 1950s. They, they, yeah, that's right. This would explain a lot of things. It would explain, for instance, about this kind of continental shift and what happened. As as Antarctica slid down with the plate tectonics and, and movement, it went uh, into a a very uh, cold region, of course, and where where it is right now. So just so and, people uh, understand how this could happen, you have a planet, the Earth, rotating in space. Exactly. It, it's got and, a, it's and got there are there are there are plates on it, uh, and it's just like Hap could use the idea of an orange, for instance. You can take the orange. If you free the skin, you can just kind of move the skin 
around the inside of the orange. The, the planet stays in the, the center of the planet, of course, stays where it is, but the, the skin of the planet moves. Um, so he was, proposing, he was proposing that the crust of the planet moves with the yeah. continents on this crust, kind of like slippage of a, of a rind on an, on an orange around – Sliding the, right along with it, yeah. right. Um, and down in Antarctica, for instance, there is uh, evidence um, – you know of of uh, the fact that Antarctica was once a, a very verdant place. There are uh, all kinds of fossil remnants of plants and things like that that have no business growing down there uh, in in that kind of southern hemisphere. By the same token, as Antarctica would move south, there would be other plants, parts of the planet that would move north, which would explain why we some, sometimes still to this day find um, mammoths, for instance, which are now extinct, but we find them uh, frozen solid with them, the last meal they ate in their stomachs, as if something happened all of a sudden to put these animals into the deep freeze. And his idea, well, of course, Hapgood went into the maps as well. Uh, there's a lot of ancient maps that actually show the shoreline of uh, Antarctica that we now can recognize very clearly, except nobody knew it was there when these maps were made. Uh, and even to this day, we can see the shoreline with our technology through the ice caps. But uh, how could people have possibly been able to map a shoreline that was underneath the ice and especially so far ago, some of these maps even came about um, that uh, purport to show rivers and things that we now know were there. But when these maps were were done, nobody nobody well, like done like that. like the famed Piraris map. Admiral the Piraris map is the greatest is 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 the great example. How did people know that? Unless perhaps Antarctica when, was when when uh, was the Piraris map uh, when was the Piraris map created? Um, I. Can't tell you the dates. I know that uh, it was first um, discovered off a chart from uh, Columbus. His ship was boarded. Uh, Perry Reese's father, actually, <laughs> his ship. And back in those days, when your ship was boarded uh, by a, an, an enemy, and in, in this case, it was the Turkish Navy. Uh, when a ship was boarded, the the, the uh, usual run of events meant to take all your charts and throw them overboard so they couldn't go to the people who would could steal them from you. Columbus oh, didn't get there. It, it was like modern uh, spies when, when, let's say, the North it, Koreans intercepted exactly. a Navy ship. The, the, uh, there's a kind of a burn situation where you burn all your classified documents so the enemy doesn't get hold of them. It, in this case, exactly. it was those, the navigation uh, charts that they got rid of. And so those, the, those those navigation charts were so po- they, who, who, who the one who had the uh, the charts had the power, uh-huh. and uh, the, the idea was not to let them fall into the hands of an enemy. Well, Perry Reese's father got hold of it, and uh, eventually it got uh, it, it was. Uh, um, you know, came down to us as now known as the Piri Reese map. It's a fascinating map, but that's only that's only one possibility of Atlantis. Uh, Antarctica is was a, a really interesting possibility. Another possibility is uh, that uh, Atlantis perhaps could have been uh, in the Caribbean and uh, the Bahama chain, where you know, of course, you were talking about the Bahamas earlier. Uh, it there could be possibly that uh, the Bahamas were part of this. The Bimini Road, for instance, uh, is often brought up. It, it's underwater right now, but it seems to be uh, human-made. Uh, huge stone whole, blocks under the ocean 
lined up geometrically. Like yeah, looks looks like they were carved stone blocks even. Uh, and this this would have been uh, a landmass that would have gone from the Bahamas all the way down to perhaps uh, Cuba could have been the uh, a, a part of this whole thing. And all of those islands might have once been above water before the water levels rose so fast. So that was another possibility for um, for Atlantis. Of course, Atlantis is often uh, there's a lot of uh, speculation that it might have been in the in the uh, in Mediterranean, and uh, it was destroyed during the Santorini volcano eruption. Mm -hmm. um, I I have a hard time with that one because Plato was so specific in so many ways that I I think he knew the difference between the Mediterranean and and, and the Atlantic. So. Um, my my bet right now is either on uh, the landmass from the Bahamas that goes all the way down into Cuba, or the uh, shift of the, the uh, shift of the Earth's crust from uh, uh, Antarctic, which moved it down south. Mm. However, it is uh, there was no doubt that uh, Plato was very specific about what what brought it down. It was uh, it was hubris. The Atlanteans thought they were being punished by the gods for uh, reaching too far and which, for trying which to brings do too me, much. Which brings me to my next question. You've been a minister, a college professor, a musician, a carpenter, a long-distance bicycle rider. We should probably get into that a bit. And now you're an author. And how did an ordained Protestant minister get into the idea of lost civilizations, let alone ancient gods and supernatural beings? That seems to be a little bit of a step. <laughs> there's a there's a story that I have to reveal. I mean, there's a secret that I have to reveal to you right now about clergy. Uh, any clergy who happen to be listening, I'm sure, will agree with me. Most of us, when we go into ministry, we go in because we have spiritual leaning, spiritual yearnings. We want to know more. We want to understand more. And in my case, um, like so many uh, my generation, we went to seminary and uh, we went by the rules and you go to seminary and it's a, a perpetual uh, school ahead of you and you learn how to speak Greek so you can read the New Testament and Hebrew so you can read the Old Testament and uh, you learn all about uh, eschatology and systematic theology and you get out of seminary having learned all of this stuff and you just know that when you get out and when you go to your first church you're going to find a great deal of uh, people who are all interested in the same thing and it's going to be a lifetime of learning and spiritual growth and then you get to your first church and you discover you're in the midst of a church split because half the church wants to use uh, styrofoam cups for the coffee hour and the other wants to use china you, know? <laughs> you, you, you get you get so involved after a while. You you're doing your or 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 the church needs a new roof and there's no money. Exactly, and it just and it is such a, a disappointment. But by now you're caught up into it in the church politics, and pretty soon you look back and 40 years have gone by, and you say what happened? Well, in my case, uh, I finally got to the point where. I, when it came time for me to retire, I could have just gone the, the regular clergy route and, you know, become a, a, a part-time minister or become a, um, a fill-in preacher for churches on Sunday morning. But I wanted to wrestle 
with spirit. I wanted to wrestle with spirit. I even, when I retired, I, I came up here to the woods in, uh, in South Carolina. I had an agenda. Um, I wanted to experience God. I wanted to experience the spirit. And I, I, I hadn't, I, I have been learning about God all my life. I've been preaching about God all my life, but I wanted to actually experience it. I was really tired of what I call peekaboo religion. You know, the idea that, uh, a God will, uh, you know, you, you say a prayer and God will do something and you say, Oh, that must've been God. And, and, you kind of assume that something had happened. That wasn't doing it for me. I wanted to get done. I even had a Bible verse in my mind. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a wonderful story uh, after Jacob and uh, Esau had their big split, the uh, two brothers. Uh, Jacob came back uh, from running away from Esau, who he had wronged. And Jacob's name was later turned changed to Israel. And when he came back to his old hometown, uh, he had a couple of wives, and he had twelve kids who were going to become the twelve, the uh, the twelve tribes of Israel. And he was going to be reconciled with his brother the next day, and he didn't know what was going to happen, and he was worried. So he was starting to pace back and forth all night. And the Bible says that a a figure came with him, and they wrestled all night. Hmm. And somehow, in the middle of this great wrestling match. Jacob understood that he was wrestling with God. What a wonderful metaphor. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that was what was going on in my mind. When I left uh, the ministry, I came up here to the woods. I built a house out in the woods. My wife and I built a road back to it. We had to bring electricity back. We had to sink a well and all that kind of stuff. And that was the idea. I will not let you go until you bless me. I was going to live in the woods for a year and wrestle with God. And that was 10 and a half years ago. And I'm still going strong. We're still <laughs> wrestling. Um, I I have to tell you, if, if we have time, I've got to tell you, there's a sequel to this story that just absolutely blows my mind. No, go ahead. Um, we have time. We have plenty well, of time. That's okay. the advantage of long-form radio. A couple, a couple of years ago, uh, I was asked to go over to Cornwall in the UK and uh, speak to a, a group called the Parallel Community. And I was supposed to do a, a, a workshop on world religions. So I went over and had a wonderful time, met some great people, did some dowsing around the Merry Maidens and some of the stone circles, had a wonderful time. But I had a private quest that I had to do. I'd never, I had never been uh, to England before. And up north of London, northwest of London, there's a little town called Fenny Copton where my ancestors, my great, 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 I don't know how many generations ago, grandfa uh, grandfather and uh, a couple of generations of them were ministers with the Church of England. And they used to preach in this little town called Fenny Compton. And doing some research, I discovered the old church that they preached in back in the 1600s was still standing. Mm. So I I had to go and, and find it. So I found a historian in town, and I met her, and she took me in. She got me into the church, and I was able to stand up there in the pulpit where my ancestor, my great-great-great ancestor, would preach every Sunday morning. And as I stood there in that pulpit, I was looking at the stained glass windows of the church. And uh, the stained glass window that you could see right from the pulpit that he would look at every single Sunday morning portrayed a picture that I'd never seen before in stained glass. It was a picture of 
Jacob wrestling with oh God, my saying, God. I will not let you go until you <laughs> bless me. I want to tell you, the hair was standing up on the back of my neck. It was just, I I can't help but believe that somehow in our in our DNA, somehow um, I inherited that and it went down through all these generations of my family. And then mm. when it came time for me to retire uh, out here to the woods, there it was. Uh, that was foremost in my mind. I'm going to wrestle with God and I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, my prayer was answered. That qualifies uh, and, as one of my hyperdimensional nodal points. Ah, those, I, I love those, it. Those th- like beads on a string, you look back at your life and yep. you see these areas yep. that either make a change, you have to make a huge decision, or yep. there's affirmation later that that was the right decision. Yeah, yeah. We are we are part of something much bigger. Um, su- surprisingly enough, my wrestling with God, um, when spirit revealed itself to me, and became real, and as I say, my prayer is answered. I, I hesitate to say God revealed God's self because God means the word God means so many different things to so many different people, and I don't want to be misunderstood. But um, the Spirit was revealed to me in a way that was totally different than Christianity, probably because I was so familiar with Christianity and I had taught it so much that I I had to come to my understanding of spiritual growth through a totally different system. And the system that I discovered, the system through which my prayer was answered, was a system that would have been, um, I think, very understandable to uh, some of the shamans shamans who who has lived on this piece of property where we uh, now live for thousands of years. Uh, It was more of a a shamanic understanding than a Christian understanding. But surprisingly enough, I I still call myself a Christian. And as I read uh, the Bible now, and as I uh, study Christianity more and more, I I find it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, uh, destroy my faith at all. It just enriches it because I'm seeing things now in metaphors and symbols that um, I've never saw before that you can find not only in Christianity, but you can find them in all the great religions. Well, of the I was going to say all great works of literature have multiple levels of meaning. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you have now grown to where, you know, let's say beyond a first time Bible reader. You see mm-hmm. the depths that were encoded for future knowledge and generation and enlightenment and bringing people closer to God, spirit, whatever. Which brings yeah. me back to my question. How did a Protestant minister get on the trail of lost civilizations and ancient <laughs> gods and supernatural stuff? We're going to talk about out-of-body stuff. We're going to talk about dowsing. Yeah. How did you well, as a Christian minister the- get into that? The, the lost civilization came because we were guided to come to a specific spot of ground. Uh, I won't give you into all the details about how we got here, but there was a piece of land out in the woods. And lo and behold, we began to start finding artifacts uh, when we were um, working in the gardens and when we were looking around. And we actually found um, involved in our own in our own backyard these mysterious uh, rock piles that we couldn't understand, and through tracking down where they were and hiring, a, I mean, having a, a friend of ours who is a uh, surveyor come over with his high-tech equipment, 
we were able to uh, plot them all and discovered, lo and behold, at the time of the uh, winter solstice, right on the place where we live right now, there are rock piles that exactly mimic the constellation of Cygnus the Swan at the and where it stands right on the uh, uh, right right on the horizon at the time of the winter solstice. Well, Andrew Collins has done more. work I was going to say Cygnus. you're you're bringing up yeah. Andrew Collins' work. Yeah, he he has done more work on any. So I I uh, I sent him our charts and I I had a super you know, you know I, I superimposed a uh, a star chart over the uh, geological uh, chart that we had here, uh, the, ge the geographical chart that we had that showed where these places were. It was exactly mimic. He got back to me within, I think, two, maybe three hours. Mm -hmm. And uh, we developed kind of a long-distance friendship over this because uh, he looked at our evidence and uh, seemed to show right on the here at the time of the winter solstice, which we're getting close to right now, uh, probably at each of these places where these rock piles were, there would have been fires lit, and you could stand there and you could see the fires that perfectly mimicked Cygnus the Swan uh, in, in the heavens. And at that time, you would have brought heaven down to earth, which is exactly how Christians pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. And this would have been a, a perfect uh, example of uh, a civilization that existed here that was very sophisticated, that understood uh, the stars, that understood procession, that understood uh, a spirituality in the heavens and trying to bring that spirituality down to earth. But we don't know anything about that civilization. It was a lost civilization. So here we are living right in the midst of a place where uh, – a very sophisticated people once lived, and yet you won't find them written about in any history books. Hmm. Has anybody done any work on who they were? Were they were they indigenous Native Americans? Were they, uh, you know, incredible seafarers who somehow made their way across the upper coast of the North Atlantic, down the North American coast to South? You're in South Carolina, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, people have done work, but, uh, but their work has been criticized. Uh, Andrew Collins has done a lot of work on this. Right over the river from us in Georgia are two very popular tourist places. It's called the uh, the Mound, the Eagle Mound effigy and the Hawk effigy. They're piles of rocks built up in the shape of an eagle and a hawk. Um, and uh, scientists try to figure out uh, who did it and, and all this kind of thing. And it's almost always put to, to Native Americans. But uh, lately, Graham Hancock has come out with his new book, America Before, mm. and postulates a much, much older civilization. Of course, uh, when um, the book Across Atlantic Ice came out and the whole Salutrian hypothesis of people coming over here from Europe, following the ice cap and coming down, probably landing somewhere in where Chesapeake Bay is right now and then moving down farther south. I, I think this is a very, very ancient land. And when people start talking about the Cherokee, uh, yeah, the Cherokee were here but I think they were Johnny come lately compared to the uh, the civilization that existed here way way before, and I'm talking thousands of years before. Right down the the uh, Savannah River from us, um, 
is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful example of all of this because there's what they call the topper site. And when uh, Al Goodyear, the head archaeologist before he retired, was doing work down there, uh, he discovered advanced uh, evidence of human beings working stone right down maybe 40 miles south of us. Uh, and his dating takes it back 50,000 years. Uh, this is way before Clovis. How is he doing and, the dating? Uh, every method that they can that they can come up with. Carbon dating, of course, is is one place because some of the artifacts he found were in layers of uh, a material that uh, ash from campfires and things that could be carbon dated. But a lot of other dating as well. And uh, he's had uh, a tremendous amount of people criticizing him. But he's stuck in there. He's done his work, and it's been checked and rechecked and visited and revisited. And uh, it it ties in, as a matter of fact, with the whole um, Younger Dryas comet impact because they found the nano diamonds there and and the black mat that they suggested that that takes it back eleven thousand six hundred years ago. But it's he's found evidence going back to like fifty thousand years ago. So. <sighs> It it's it joins those sites that a lot of people don't want to say can be because it it just goes against the archaeology that we've been taught for the last fifty years, but it's it it stands up over and over again every time the tests are made. So uh, I'm living in the midst of a of a lost civilization myself, and I think that's probably what got me interested in it in the first place. We got a couple three minutes till the top of the hour. Um... Refresh my memory. What did? Why did Andrew Collins think Cygnus was important? Um, Cygnus is uh, Cygnus the Swan. the The whole idea of um, of the Swan keeps coming back in the mythology and in the archaeology that we've discovered. Because uh, in the midst of Cygnus the Swan, there is, of course, the Northern Cross. And this northern cross uh, stands right at the dividing line. When you stand here and look past this northern cross, past Cygnus, you you are looking right at the great rift of the Milky Way. And Cygnus the swan is the way in so many different religions from Egypt to here to uh, Europe, all over, show that Cygnus the swan is – uh, marks the way, the path of the souls that leads to the next life. And when a person leaves here, the swan, in effect, carries him. Uh, we find it in opera today, you know, but when the when the person dies, he first sings his swan song before he dies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have the idea this is where life comes from, not from a, a swan but a stork. We tell our kids, oh, the stork brought you. And it's a uh, it it is it, it it is illuminating the path that the soul takes when it departs this earth and goes on to the next life mm. in heaven. Swans and, do something else very important. They migrate. They migrate. Yeah. So yeah. this is a metaphor for the migration of us into an afterlife. I exactly exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's let's pause here. My guest this morning is uh, James Willis, ordained minister James Willis, and all kinds of other things much too long to go through again. He's a generalist, 
And we're generally looking, we're going to get very specific at ancient cultures, the folks who came before, lost civilizations. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.